Welcome to In Our Experience, a podcast exploring the many ways of living well with Nourish Yoga training. I'm your host, Harriet, yoga teacher and founder of Nourish. Today, I'm joined by Barbara Sokova. Barbara is a yoga teacher and academic originally from Prague in the Czech Republic. She's currently finishing her DPhil in Sanskrit at the University of Oxford with research focused on animals, plants and human-animal relationships in Vedic India. She's deeply interested in nature, environmental activism and climate crisis. I had a really lovely time chatting with Barbara. We talked about the value of a great teacher, trusting our personal experiences and the joy of being outdoors. I would love to hear what you think about our episode today. So do pop us a message or an email. You can find how to contact us in the show notes. Right. Here's my chat with Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Hello. Welcome to In Our Experience. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here as well. How are you doing today? Um, I'm all right. I'm really cold, actually. <laughs> I'm freezing. It is cold today. It was very icy this morning. Yeah, yeah, it was. I woke up and it was still dark and I was just like, I'm just not going to go out of bed. <laughs> Why? It did. I did. I did snooze my alarm several times this morning. So I'm right there with you. Um, well, we're going to begin our episode today by, as we do every episode, I'm going to ask you what's nourishing you this week. And as I, as I sort of always say, this can be something small, silly, it can be profound if you want it to be. And I will help you out by sharing mine first. And this is my first recording session back after the Christmas break. And I had a really nice time over Christmas doing lots and lots of reading. I read some great books by the fire with snacks and it felt really nice actually to not spend hardly any time on my computer that felt like a real gift so that's me what about you well in true Barbara fashion I absolutely overthought overthought um this question (laughs) since you've asked me I thought about it almost like every other day um and so I thought I could say two things actually um One of them is currently nourishing my intellectual self um, and it's a reading I've been doing. Um, It's a book by David Wengro and David Greber, um, archaeologist and anthropologist, um, called The Dawn of Everything. And it's um, sort of like a new history of um, the humankind and how basically a story of inequality, um, how we got where we are now with this capitalist hellscape and whether it's, you know, whether hierarchy is an innate thing um, in the human condition. Um, So that's been really nourishing me intellectually. Um, But in a more kind of general way, I think um, it has to be, has to be um, my time um, away. I went away for four or five days with, you know, my best friends in the UK. Um, we rented a house in the Peak District and just spent, you know, the New Year's and the, the days around New Year's um, just climbing and walking and eating good food and playing board games. And it was just really nice to be outside and moving, even though it's cold, but it was sunny. It was also wet, <laughs> but it's fine. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. So that has to be that as well. 
both of those things are very good. We will we'll link to that book in the show notes so people can find it. But that sounds fascinating. And I love that we're we're not even like three minutes in and we're already talking about a capitalist hellscape. <laughs> yeah. As I said, true Barbara fashion. It's very on brand. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Oh and yeah, it's really nice to be outside. And I think New Year it's a it's a weird time of year for all sorts of reasons. But I think taking time out and going away just sounds like perfection. Yeah, it totally is. And I've been trying to do it basically every year, apart from last year where we couldn't go anywhere. Mm. Um, But basically every year, that's like the first thing I do is to go outside if I can. Mm. And it's, it's something that my parents taught me to do. We would always go to the mountains. And although the Czech Republic, where I'm originally from, doesn't have massive mountains, it's you know, rounded hills because it's so continental. We do have a lot of snow Mm. or we used to have 20, 30 years ago when, you know, climate change was still not the thing, Mm. kind of. Um, So we would go skiing um, every time and it was just really good thing to do, you know, start the year anew, um, moving outside in the cold. And yeah, yeah, I really like doing it still. Mm. That's so nice. I think... I I quite like cold weather. Like I don't like being cold, but I enjoy cold weather, which is a like it's a interesting conundrum to find myself in. But I think if you're like properly dressed and mm. your houses are properly heated. Oh yeah, not like in the UK. No. <laughs> <laughs> or on my boat, which just leaks heat out of every surface. I think one of the things people don't realize about boats is that you're sitting in like you're a metal container sitting in cold water in the winter. Mm. So all of the heat just leaks out the sides of the boat. But my boat is very cozy, so you know, I don't yeah. mind it. I can imagine you're a very cozy person, so yeah. Oh, uh, and I'm also a total firebug, so <laughs> my, my fire. I like my fire is so hot that I like, I like warped the the steel or the iron like grates in the <laughs> that the, like hold the coal in. My landlord was really impressed. He was like, "I've never got it that hot," and I was like, "Wow." Well, <laughs> Watch and learn. Yeah. (laughs) I think he was a little bit worried that I'd set the whole boat on fire. But oh well. Um, well, tell me tell me a little bit about your background and how you would how you would describe what you do, what it is that you do. Mm, I think it's a really good question. Um, because I do a lot of things and they can't really be described by one word. Um, I think a useful category for me. And to hide behind, hide behind is um, that I'm a student and I've been a student for a really long time, actually. I've been in a university education since 2009, which is a long, long time. Mm. Um, so I'm currently a DPhil student here at Oxford um, working on um, Sanskrit um, is the broader subject area that I work, work that I work on. Um, but I am actually a veticist working on um, animals, especially domesticated animals in ancient India, roughly around, you know, 1000 before common era. Um, but apart from my research, I do loads of other things. So um, I climb a lot, <laughs> a lot, lot. Um, 
I am a yoga teacher. I have a weekly class in Oxford in a really wonderful place called Let's Grow Boxing, which is a sort of, you know, very open, accessible boxing studio. Mm. But they kind of invited me to, to do a bit of movement there, which has been really lovely. Um, and I also teach or facilitate yoga history classes, um, which, you know, that is really tying loads of knots from the the strings that um that I do so um that is both inviting the yoga part of me the movement part of me and also the academic part of me together um and to facilitate um kind of learning and growing for um yoga teachers who might be interested in history and philosophy and all these various things one of the things that I'm, I always, one of the images that always comes to mind for me when I am talking to people in this field, like, because we always do many, many things, is like um, Indra's net, the mm. sort of myth of, the myth of Indra's net. And if people aren't familiar with this, it's this idea that like, there's this like net of, I'm going to tell it wrong, but like net of diamonds or like net of like little points that like connect us all. And it's sort of a... Um, it's a like allegory for the interconnectedness of the universe in a sense. But I'm always like, we've got these little nets that we cast out and we just scoop everything up and bring it in. Yeah, yeah, it totally is like that. Sometimes I imagine it as a Wikipedia page, like where you can like <laughs> click and click and click and you end up, you know, with something completely different that, that you have started. And sometimes my life does feel like that, that, mm. you know, I have started doing something completely different, but I've been clicking on the um, hyperlinks and mm -hmm. I have ended up, some, ended up somewhere and I'm like, oh, how, how did I even get here? But it kind of makes sense when I look back. Well, I was just about to ask, like, tell me a little bit about how that unraveled for you. Like, was it the the yoga that came first or the academia that came first or did they happen at the same time they kind of happened at the same time so i was i i think i have always been really interested in other cultures and in history and kind of like knowing stuff that not very many people care about mm -hmm. um which sounds really hipsterish but <laughs> maybe it just is. likes being really obscure yeah. everybody <laughs> <laughs> kind of um but yeah my mum would always read me like greek myths when i was really small mm. and i was always interested interested in things like that so when i was thinking um in high school what i would like to do um i picked religious studies oh. because the program in prague was very broad and it actually was um, yeah, it was like basics of all humanities in one degree, um, but looking through the lens of religious studies. And so I came came into the degree um, and I really wanted to do Judaism because it was the only different thing I knew. Mm. Um, like in Central European history, you don't really learn about Hinduism that much or anything else. So I knew about Judaism and started studying Hebrew. Um, and then slowly, slowly, I started like meeting all these other traditions and these like other people and other places. And um, yeah, through um, really influential influential teacher that I'm still in touch with and up till today, um, I started studying India just because he was really good. He was a really great pedagogue. And so um, I think it was mainly through him and sort of his passion and his psych for the subject. I like got really psyched myself. Um, 
And in the same time, I um, first went away volunteering in Iceland when I was in my first year at uni. Um, and I worked at archaeological excavations of a monastery. Oh, and wow. when I came back, I was like, oh, monasteries are fun. I just spent, you know, some time in a monastery. Why wouldn't I do it next year as well? And I found a place in Nepal um, and I volunteered there. Um, in a Tibetan monastery wow. um, as an English teacher in my second year um, for a few months, actually. Um, and I didn't know much about the South Asian culture or anything like that. And I came back and I was, you know, my mind was completely blown. It was really a changing um, experience in my life. And I was like, well, I should study Sanskrit because I should know about something that you know, informed this experience. And so slowly I started building on this first-hand experience. Um, but so that that's the academic side that sort of, you know, started my passion for the South Asia. Um, but in the same time, uh, when you're at uni in the Czech Republic, and I think in Germany as well, you have to do some PE um, in the first two or three semesters. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And I, I grew up as a very active child. Um, I was um, actually in a national team for uh, rowing when I was in junior wow. years. Um, so I, I competed for the Czech Republic in a single skull. Um, and I kind of dropped it when I was a teenager because, you know, it's it's not cool to move. And I mm. wanted to be, uh, you know, in a hardcore punk scene and do all these different <laughs> kinds of things. So I completely dropped like movement. But um, I started at uni, had to do these PE courses and I picked yoga. Um, I don't know why. I absolutely hated it. Um, it was taught by a cult in Prague. It was, um, it's called Yoga Daily. Um, it's an international school, but they have a oh. school in Prague. Oh, I think I might know which organization you mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely despised it. Um, but something kind of yeah, there was a spark. Mm. And when I left for Nepal, I actually started doing sun salutations every day without knowing really anything else about yoga. And because I'm kind of like interested in my own personal experiences more than, you know, what are people telling me? Mm. I would do sun salutations every day when I was in Nepal for months and months and then came back and was like, well, I should find a yoga teacher that I like. Um, and I did. And it kind of stuck. Yeah, and here I am. So it really happened in the same time, kind mm. of, um, from two different directions yeah. almost. It's so interesting how, like, it, to both of those sort of threads, the importance of, like, a great teacher mm. is to those journeys and is to those experiences. And I think for so many people who feel that yoga isn't for them or that yoga isn't accessible or that... Uh, learning and academia also isn't, isn't accessible. It often is because they haven't they haven't found their way in, or they haven't found the teacher to show them their way in to yeah. to how it could be for them. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really important to you know if as yoga teachers we have students that we feel like they don't really like us to say <laughs> in a kind of ego less passion you know maybe it's me you can go and try something else and maybe you won't like something else either but you know, just to like kind of step away and be like maybe I'm not the right teacher for you and you 
you could look elsewhere and it's fine to look elsewhere. I think it's really important step for us. I I couldn't agree more. I think a really common anxiety for new yoga teachers is is this desire to sort of meet everybody's needs and it's just it's it's not sustainable it's not enjoyable for you or your students and it doesn't like it sets an interesting precedent like that I'm not sure is that healthy or supportive in the long term um so yeah having sort of having some humility and like perspective about what you're able to offer as a yoga teacher, I think is really important. Yeah, it obviously takes a lot of selflessness um, mm. and courage to be like, to step out of your role and, you know, offer somebody a change of direction. But I think if we want to be authentic or true good yoga teachers, we really do have to do that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about your research because you talked, you said animals and immediately I'm like, hello. (laughs) Um, but it, yeah, it sounds really interesting and quite niche, but I'm here for niche things. So (laughs) yeah, it's totally niche, even within, within Indology, within the study of India. Um, so I basically look through the Vedic literature, um, which is really kind of a heart obscure um, era of um, of the Indian literature roughly spanning 1,500 before common era to roughly 500-ish. Um, and this is rit- literature which is mainly religious. So it's a lot of things about, it's very self-contained. It It is a lot of things about ritual and um, Mainly, you know, it's hymns to various gods, it's um, it's ritual manuals, how you are supposed to do fire sacrifices, all these kinds of things. Um, so it's very hard to read and it's quite boring um, for even the specialists. Um, but what is really interesting um, about this kind of literature is that sometimes um, the authors, and we don't really know who they are, they're anonymous, they're probably groups of people, Sometimes they hint at things about their world. Um, Not much, but they just kind of drip feed you. They sometimes say something like, oh, you know, tiger skin is used for this. And you're wondering, oh, where are there tigers? You have never mentioned tigers for 500 years. Why are you suddenly talking about tigers? Mm. Um, So I'm looking at this massive corpus of heart literature to try to figure out how the Vedic culture, which was semi-nomadic, they for some time in the year would settle down um, and do some agriculture and sometime they would herd their livestock around northern India. Um, I'm looking at these people and their literature to figure out how they used animals and not only as a material, not only as herd animals, but also how they thought about them and Mm. how they constructed the symbolism of these animals. Um, And predominantly, even though I'm really interested in wild animals, I'm predominantly looking at domesticated animals, just because that's what we know most about Mm -hmm. from the texts. And one question that is really, really interesting to me is basically looking at how they conceived of themselves as people, um, whether 
they thought about themselves as animals or whether they had kind of this step back that we have in our own culture that, you know, we are slightly different than other animals. We are special kind of animal. Um, and although they do tend to think about people as special kind of animal, they see strings that connects them with other animals, especially with cows. And they keep saying, you know, in the past, cows were also walking on two feet and upright. Oh, really? wow. um, but but they, you know, devolved. They fell down on four feet and started walking like that because they were scared that we would sacrifice them. And all these kind of stories that hint at um, the time before present was like, even time before past that we remember that, you know, before that we were all one group, mm. um, animals and humans living together. It's very obscure, <laughs> but it's it's a lot of fun to try to untangle how other people in other times thought about, you know, not only themselves, but also other, other creatures. No, I think that's it. I mean, yes, it's obscure, but <laughs> but it's. I think it's really interesting. I think I one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently are these sort of like internalized hierarchies that we that we have. Um, so when you brought up your, you know, your nourishing thing at the beginning, I was like, oh yes, we can talk about this, um, because I mean, we have such an enforced binary in you know in today's world around like there's humans and then there's everything else um which is like unhelpful at the best of times and incredibly toxic and damaging at the worst and particularly if you start to expand it out to think about you know things like climate crisis and you know how I guess one of the questions that I have for the world is like, how would how would we approach things like the climate crisis differently if we had a less hierarchical conception of our relationship to other organisms? Yeah, totally. This is totally um, what I have in the back of my mind when I write my default thesis. And although it's not going to be the bulk of my research, mm. it's definitely something I'll be hinting at, at least in the introduction and conclusion to it. Um, and yeah, it's. I think it's absolutely correct to ask how else we could think about the world mm. that would change our relationship to it. Um the first thing that pops in my mind when talking about this is this wonderful, wonderful anthropological book by a woman called Anna Tsing, um, T-S-I-N-G, who is a Chinese-American. And she wrote this beautiful, beautiful book called The Mushroom at the End of the World, oh. which is about how people in this capitalist hellscape that we are living now um, are picking mushrooms for a living and how they are entangled with the life of the mushroom. Mm -hmm. um, it's on this particular mushroom called the Matsutake. Um, it's um, one of the most expensive mushrooms on the Japanese market and in the world. And it's really sought for. Um, and she's kind of tracing how, you know, for the market, um, it is an important community, but how also for the people who are picking it, it's an important community because it literally gives them life and how their lives are entangled within the mushroom. And um, yeah, 
so and she being you know a mushroom picker from um half china half america um kind of shows how with a different culture background you can mm. look at the world and on the world completely differently mm. um and so i'm wondering whether informed by other times and other peoples and uh, you know other cultures experiences of the world whether we can change in in how we look at the world and how we talk about it and how we how we perform and how we behave towards it mm. it's really hard but to retrain your mind not to see everything in binary terms mm. but I think it's very much worth it and will be worth it um, as the climate crisis, you know, progresses, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I think particularly one of the things I often think about a lot is this is very random is I think about Shintoism a lot mm. um, and the sort of the the. Like the like the animism of Shintoism in a sense of like you know uh, this idea that objects have spirits um, and that you know and sort of beyond that as well that like animals have like you know it sort of extends, um, but it's something that I really uh, it really resonates with me in a certain sense in that like spaces have. Uh, energetic qualities to them and objects have energetic qualities to mm. them. And I don't like it's you know, I'm conscious of sounding like a really stereotypical yoga teacher at this point, but like the, you know, it's something that feels true in me. So I feel quite comfortable talking about it, but it does really, it, it's something that really impacts on how I live my life. Like, so for example, I spend a lot of time taking care of my home because like I, feel like I need to you know give back energy into that space or you know if I think about how we hold space as yoga teachers like it sort of extends into those into those realms as well and then you know we can like extend it even beyond into sort of how we navigate those those larger problems but and you're right it is very possible to like reframe and retrain these ideas but I think the thing that I sometimes get really disheartened by is just how like like one thing often piles on top of another, like in terms mm. of like, you know, the world is really, sometimes it feels like the world is really biased against us. Yeah. Like capitalism, you know, the patriarchy, you know, all of this, like one on top of the other. And it can be really hard to like, like turn against that tide, even if it's just on an individual level. Yeah, 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 that, that is so true. But I feel like, as you said, these things, if they're true to you, mm. then it makes them easier to touch upon. Mm. Well, yeah, and I think this is, I think... Like if it if it was something that you try to retrain yourself in, and kind of reframe your thinking and it would be hard but if it's true in, and authentic in yourself then mm. like I for instance anthropomorphize everything like <laughs> looking at trees looking at like I don't know birds water everything I'm like my mind is just constantly like giving it as you said like animistic kind of yeah. presence and so 
um, I feel like if I tapped into this kind of childish mm. way of thinking about the world a bit more in my normal everyday thinking, it would it would be then easier to you know approach the world yeah differently yeah so I think if you like tap into the relationships that you already have in your mind to the world um and you just behave the way you are it's it's hard to stand against the tide of the world but mm. eventually we can get there I don't know if it makes sense but no 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 that makes total sense I think I think the thing that becomes really important in that for me is that you have to have a you have to have a personal experience to tie these things back to you have to have a sense of like what it means for you in your world and in the way that you navigate your life um and often often one of the things that i i see people doing you know if they're if they're beginning on their journey towards i don't know understanding pick a pick an ism like if they're if they're on their journey towards understanding capitalism or understanding sexism or racism or whatever the case may be homophobia you know pick pick any of pick all of them often what they do is go big Mm. like they'll pull back and they'll want to look at everything and I'm like you need to do that to an extent like that's really important but more important I think for the long term is digging in and understanding how it shows up in you first yeah because that's where change comes from yeah totally um but it also makes me think about how in I mean, I know you're going to roll your eyes at me. I'm going to bring up the Yoga Sutra. (laughs) Barbara doesn't like the Yoga Sutra. That's fine. (laughs) But um, is it it in, I can't remember off the top of my head which one, which it's in the first, first book, but talking about the different ways of gaining knowledge and it's, um, like, direct experience is the first one, followed by logic followed by talking to other people about it essentially and paraphrasing but that emphasis first on like your own direct experience of things being the primary way that you should like experience and gain knowledge about the world I think is so useful and also the complete opposite to the way that we learn today mostly yeah, yeah. it's really interesting that you are bringing this up because um these um, things they're um, so-called pramanas or um, they are the um, kind of backgrounds of knowledge in India and direct experience is actually the one that all the philosophical schools in India including the Buddhists and the Jains who are usually kind of like unimpressed by the Hindu <laughs> Hindu um, philosophical schools and um, they're the ones that um, the one that everybody agrees upon uh, oh, the direct really? knowledge I didn't know that um, yeah so and I feel like it's really the the best thing you can say to yoga practitioners, like really trust in yourself. And it doesn't matter whether you like the Yoga Sutra or not, or whether, you know, what kind of philosophical mm. um, background you want to have um, to your yoga practice. The, if it's if it comes from you and from your direct experience, your personal experience, it's going to be worth it. Mm. Um and that's just some like such a good basis to to stand upon for all of us. It really is. And it's I mean, it's also something that I think unfortunately gets lost so easily, particularly when 
again, circling back to hierarchies, we have these hierarchies around who holds knowledge and who holds power and who should be trusted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things that yoga offers is tools for like, I mean, clearly coming back to that direct knowledge and coming back to that sort of like, you know, trusting of one's own experience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does really. And it should be valued for that more than for anything else. It like gives time and space for um, direct experience. And, you know, in this, in 2022, um, nothing really wants our direct experience. When you look at social media, like nobody cares about your own direct experience because there is multitude of direct experiences. And so um, I think having the time and sort of bracketed space and time and attention that you can give to your own practice and yourself and your personal experience is really valuable. And mm. we should really cherish it more as yoga teachers and yoga practitioners as well and students. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, I think it's one of the, um, one of the, one of the greatest gifts that our practice offers us, offers, offers us. And <laughs> you know, that as yoga teachers, you're right. We, we offer, to our students. Um, well, we are reaching near the end of our time already. Um, so where can our listeners find you if they're looking for you? Um, I am very bad in promoting myself. <laughs> so the only place um, the listeners can find me is on Instagram, on um, Barbara Yoga. My name is spelled really in a funny way and um, with O in the middle. So it's B-A-R-B-O underscore R-A underscore yoga. Great. Um, and yeah, that's the only place really. I um, mean, it's simple, yeah. clean, effective. <laughs> um, I hold classes in Oxford and sometimes in Prague. So yeah, if somebody wants to just give me a message and I'll be happy to chat. Oh, lovely. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Barbara. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you so much, Harriet. As always. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to In Our Experience. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. We love hearing what you think and it makes a really big difference. In the meantime, until the next episode comes out, why not check us out on our Instagram account at Nourish Yoga Training or pop us an email via our website. See you soon.